God's word in 2 Kings chapter 2 says, Now when the Lord was about to take Elijah up to heaven by a whirlwind, Elijah and Elisha were on their way from Gilgal. And Elijah said to Elisha, Please stay here, for the Lord has sent me as far as Bethel. But Elisha said, As the Lord lives, and as you yourself live, I will not leave you. So they went down to Bethel. And the sons of the prophets who were in Bethel came out to Elisha and said to him, Do you know that today the Lord will take away your master from over you? And he said, Yes, I know. Keep quiet. Elijah said to him, Elisha, please stay here, for the Lord has sent me to Jericho. But he said, As the Lord lives, and as you yourself live, I will not leave you. So they came to Jericho. The sons of the prophets who were at Jericho drew near to Elisha and said to him, Do you know that today the Lord will take away your master from over you? And he answered, Yes, I know it. Keep quiet. Then Elijah said to him, Please stay here, for the Lord has sent me to the Jordan. But he said, As the Lord lives, and as you yourself live, I will not leave you. So the two of them went on. Fifty men of the sons of the prophets also went and stood at some distance from them, as they both were standing by the Jordan. Then Elijah took his cloak and rolled it up and struck the water, and the water was parted to one side and on the other till the two of them could go over on dry ground. When they had crossed, Elijah said to Elisha, Ask what I shall do for you before I am taken from you. And Elisha said, Please let there be a double portion of your spirit on me. And he said, You have asked a hard thing. Yet, if you see me as I am being taken from you, it shall be so for you. But if you do not see me, it shall not be so. And as they still went on and talked, behold, chariots of fire and horses of fire separated the two of them. And Elijah went up by a whirlwind into heaven. And Elisha saw it and he cried, My father, my father, the chariots of Israel and its horsemen. And he saw him no more. Then he took hold of his own clothes and tore them in two pieces. And he took up the cloak of Elijah that had fallen from him and went back and stood on the bank of the Jordan. Then he took the cloak of Elijah that had fallen from him and struck the water, saying, Where is the Lord, the God of Elijah? And when he had struck the water, the water was parted to the one side and to the other, and Elisha went over. Now when the sons of the prophets who were at Jericho saw him opposite them, they came to meet him and bowed to the ground before him. And they said to him, Behold now, there are with you fifty servants, strong men. Please let them go and seek your master. It may be that the Spirit of the Lord has caught him up. And cast him upon a mountain or into some valley. And he said, You shall not send. But when they urged him till he was ashamed, he said, Send. They sent therefore fifty men, and for three days they sought him, but did not find him. And they came back to him while he was staying at Jericho. And he said to them, Did I not say to you, Do not go? Now the men of the city said to Elisha, Behold, the situation of the city is pleasant, as my Lord sees, but the water is bad, and the land is unfruitful. He said, Bring me a new bowl and put salt in it. So they brought it to him. Then he went to the spring of water and threw salt in it and said, Thus says the Lord, I have healed you and I have healed this water. From now on, neither death nor miscarriage shall come from it. So the water has been healed to this day according to the word that Elijah, Elisha, spoke. He went up from there to Bethel. And while he was going up on the way, some small boys came out of the city and jeered at him, saying, Go up, you bald head. Go up, you bald head. And he turned around, and when he saw them, he cursed them in the name of the Lord. And two she-bears came out of the woods and tore forty-two of the boys. From there he went on to Mount Carmel, and from there he returned to Samaria. 
well, it's almost a truism in pastoral circles, that you should avoid going to serve in a church where the prior pastor has been there for numerous years. This is especially the case if it was the founding pastor and the planter of the church. While going to serve after that long-serving pastor doesn't inevitably bring conflicts, often it's only a matter of time before the new pastor is compared with the old one in their style, their manner, and any little difference that there might be in their views. Often in just a couple years, the new pastor is either fired or resigned due to constant complaining in comparison that he is not like the new pastor. This is not just in the church, though. When I was a teacher, one of the hardest things was to take a class over mid-year. You were constantly compared to the prior teacher, and you were either too soft or too hard, taught too quick or too slow, explained things too difficult or too easily, and on and on. The issue is, how do we effectively transition leadership? How do we go from having one leader who is loved, respected, and admired, and then another one without losing the mission of the organization? One tragic tale of the passing of the baton is Mars Hill Church in Seattle. It started in the late 1990s and grew until it had almost 13,000 regular attenders in 2014. Yet when their pastor resigned, the church was shut within a month. All 13,000 members as well. Thus, how do we serve and pass the baton so that the removal of a leader does not end the mission? Well, we see this morning in 2 Kings 2 that this can only happen as the people involved serve not for themselves, but God. God's work will continue with or without us. And so to continue, we must be serving Him and that are not ourselves. Well, this is no ordinary transition. This is going from Elijah, one of the two most well-known and respected Old Testament prophets. And now he's called home to God. What will happen when he, the bold and faithful prophet, goes? Well, Second Kings 2 tells of this in three parts. The first part is we see Elijah's final journey in verses 1 through 8. Then in verses 9 through 18, we see Elijah's removal. But then it's not over because in 19 through 25, we see Elisha's indwelling. And I'm sure at some time throughout, as I did, I think, twice in the reading, I'll say Elisha when I should have said Elijah, or Elijah when I should say Elisha, so just plug in the correct name when I misspeak. But this all starts with us being a clue about everything that's going to happen, because verse 1 says, now when the Lord is about to take Elisha up to heaven by a whirlwind. So we now know exactly what's going to happen, and yet those in the story don't know this. I mean, they have some clues, but they don't know all the details. And really, this transition began back in 1 Kings 19, where there in 1 Kings 19, 16, God told Elijah that Elisha will follow you. And Elijah went and threw his cloak over Elisha. We haven't heard much about him or really anything about Elisha since then, except we know that he was a servant, that he went from a rich family and now he did menial tasks like pouring water for Elijah. Well, this day begins with Elijah and Elisha on their way from Gilgal. And to understand this story, you really have to see the purposefulness about it. Elijah takes a unique journey, but it's anything but random. It's not meaningless, and it's not just haphazardly choosing locations. You may have noticed, Elijah went to Bethel, then to Jericho, and then across the Jordan. And where did Elisha go afterwards? We'll just go in reverse order. He crossed the Jordan, 
He went back to Jericho. He went back to Bethel. Why are they picking these locations? Well, there's symbology and intention behind it. What is going on? Well, let's start with Gilgal. Gilgal is where Israel crossed the Jordan River. And there, Joshua set up 12 stones when they crossed the Jordan. And it says in Joshua 4, When your children ask their fathers in times to come, what do these stones mean? Then you shall let your children know, Israel passed over this Jordan on dry ground. For the Lord your God dried up the waters of the Jordan for you until you passed over as the Lord your God did to the Red Sea, which he dried up for us until we passed over, so that all the peoples of the earth may know that the hand of the Lord is mighty, that you may fear the Lord your God forever. Thus Gilgal is the place where Israel first began to experience the blessings of God's promises of the promised land. And so they set up these stones to be a perpetual reminder of God's faithfulness to them. If you then went and read Joshua 5 right after this, you would see that all the men in Israel were circumcised to say, we are going to be faithful to the covenant as God was faithful to us. And so Gilgal was essential in Israel's initial enjoying and reaffirming their commitment to God's promises. And it would continue to be a key place in Israel. When Samuel was a judge over Israel, he would go to three places every year. Gilgal was one of them. At Gilgal was where Saul was made the king of Israel, their first king. And yet while Gilgal is a place of covenant affirmation and renewal, it's also a place of covenant breaking. At Gilgal, Saul will disobey and make the sacrifices because Samuel has not come. At Gilgal, Saul will not destroy the Amalekites like he should, and the kingdom will be taken from him. So, they start at Gilgal, this important place showing the highs and lows of Israel's faithfulness to God, and they go to Bethel. Well, what's Bethel? Bethel is where God first met with Jacob, the father of the nation Israel. That's where it all began. And Bethel was a place that Samuel also visited annually. And yet, what else is Bethel known for? Well, when Jeroboam led Israel and the ten tribes of the north away, he set up in Bethel false gods. He made two golden calves. He made false priests. And he made sacrifices there. So like Gilgal, Bethel is a place of the highs and the lows of Israel's faithfulness to God. Well, Elijah tries to get Elisha away from him by now going to Jericho, but Elisha won't leave. But why Jericho? Well, again, this is a place of highs and lows. It's where Israel crossed and had their first victory. Right before their victory, we read in Joshua 5, 13, when Joshua was by Jericho, he lifted up his eyes and looked and behold, a man was standing before him with his drawn sword in his hand. And Joshua went to him and said to him, are you for us? Or are you for our adversaries? And he said, no, but I am commander of the Lord, of the army of the Lord. Now I have come. And Joshua fell on his face to the earth and worshiped and said, what does my Lord say to your servant? And the commander of the Lord's army said to Joshua, take off your sandals from your feet for the place you're standing is holy. And so Jericho is where they first begin to have God come and fight for them. And they go and defeat Jericho. And yet Jericho is also where Achan sins. And where Israel begins to lose God fighting for them. And after they destroyed Jericho, we read in 1 Kings 16 that God had told them 
never rebuild the city. And yet 1 Kings 16.34 says, Hiel from Bethel laid its foundation at the cost of Abiram his firstborn and set up its gate at the cost of his youngest son, Sugub, according to the word of the Lord, which he spoke by Joshua, the son of Nun. So Hiel either chose possessions over human life. I don't care about my kids. I'd rather have a city. Or Israel had so not cared about God's word that they didn't know that God had made this curse upon the city. Either way, Jericho is again a place of Israel's faithfulness and Israel's unfaithfulness. Elijah makes a third attempt to get away by himself by going to the Jordan River. But Elisha refuses again to be separated from his master. You know, each city, Elijah tries to distance himself. And at each city, Elisha strongly says, no. You may have noticed his strong language. He says, as the Lord lives, I will not leave you. Well, to understand what's going on, we have to remember everything that's happening. Remember, when Elijah came to Elisha, he threw his cloak over him, symbolically showing that you will be the next leader. And now, three times, he has basically said, Elisha, you don't have to take this. Elisha, do you really want to take the mantle, literally, and follow me? You know, Elijah and Elisha knows what Elisha is about to take up is not a large signing bonus, not great benefits, paid vacation, and national respect. In fact, what he's about to sign up for is being number one on the king of Israel's most wanted list. It may mean having to live in caves, being given food by animals, and hiding in foreign countries while people hate you. And Elijah is saying, Elisha, are you sure you want this? Why don't you just stay here and let me go? And each time Elisha commits himself to the Lord. It's as though he's being tested and Elisha passed each test. Well, now when they get to the Jordan, 50 prophets follow at a distance, seemingly wanting to know what will happen. And at the Jordan, Elijah takes off his cloak, rolls it up and hits the water and it parts. Now, if you're new to reading the Bible, you might be thinking, ah, so Elijah had levitation or have you say it, Dr. Strange's cloak. He got it before it existed. Some magical wardrobe that you can use whenever you want. And you might be thinking, man, could I get one of those? When it rains, sometimes there's puddles. And if I could just, I could walk on dry ground. In other words, let's get some magical devices so that life would be easier. And yet, while we might think that due to our culture's understanding of magic robes, the cloak, as we'll see, has no power in and of itself, and Elijah is not using it selfishly. Elijah does this, he parts the Jordan, to show a connection to what God has done before in parting the Red Sea, and then what happened after that in Joshua and the priest parting the Jordan River. And yet while the cloak is not magical, God does use it to symbolize the authority of the prophets, and thus Elisha will later pick it up. Yet crossing the Jordan now sets up the moment we've been waiting for since the beginning of the chapter. And that's the second section, Elijah's removal. So the parting of the river allows them to cross and it stops the 50 men following so they can go and get out of their sight. And when they're there, Elijah asks Elisha what he should do for him 
before he leaves. Now, this is really functioning like a second test of Elisha's future leadership. I mean, this is a Solomon-like test. Ask whatever you want. What would you say? Wow, anything I want? You know, the prophets were really struggling with our housing. Could we get some expansion in the dorms and hot water? I know that's not invented yet, but could we get some hot water pipes running through that place? Or, you know, there's lots of things we could say we'd want, but what does Elisha ask for? A double portion of Elijah's spirit. Now, you may think, well, hold on, isn't that contradicting? Isn't Elisha failing the test? Well, not really, because you have to understand Israelites' inheritance laws. In Deuteronomy 21.17, it declared that the firstborn would inherit a double portion. When Elijah called Elisha, you may remember that Elisha then broke the yoke of his oxen and sacrificed them. In other words, he severed his physical family ties and he made his ties spiritually through Elijah. He now sees that my family is Elijah and that's when Elijah is taken up. What does he cry? My father, my father, not my spiritual mentor, my spiritual mentor. Elijah is now his family. And so when Elisha says, give me a double portion, he's just asking for what the Old Testament law promised for the son firstborn of the father. And so then Elijah says, this will hard, be hard. And I think he says it's hard because ultimately he can't give that. Only the Lord is allowed to give these spiritual blessings. But he does say, if you can see this happen, then you will receive it. And while they continue to talk, chariots of fire and horses come down, separate the two men, and the whirlwind takes Elijah to heaven. I don't know what your church life was like growing up or if you were in church, but I have fond memories of singing Swing Low, Sweet Chariots, Coming Forth to Carry Me Home. And while that song is good, that's not what happened here. What took Elijah to heaven? The whirlwind. The chariots only separated him and Elisha. It looks like Elisha was so close, he was not going to allow any separation. So the fire and the chariots came and separated him. So more accurately, we should sing, Swing low, sweet whirlwind, coming forth to carry me home. I don't think it's going to catch on though, so enjoy the song. And yet we really have to understand what Elisha is saying. Because of the event that just happened, we think, oh, the fire of the chariots and the horses. He's talking about what he saw from heaven, but he's actually talking about Elijah. Notice he says, my father, my father, still talking about Elijah. And he says, the chariots of Israel and his horsemen. It was Elijah and then later Elisha who function as the chariots of Israel and their horsemen. To see this, flip over a few chapters, four chapters, to 2 Kings chapter 6. In 2 Kings chapter 6, look at verses 15 through 17. There it says, When the servant of the man of God, that would be Elisha, rose early in the morning and went out, behold, an army with horses and chariots was all around the city. And the servant said, Alas, my master Elisha, what shall we do? He said, do not be afraid, for those who are with us are more, are more than those who are with them. Then Elisha prayed and said, O Lord, please open his eyes that he may see. See what Elisha saw. And what is that? So the Lord opened the eyes of the young man and he saw, behold, the mountain was full of horses and chariots of fire all around Elisha. 
Elijah, and then Elisha were God's protection over Israel. God gave Elisha eyes to see what Elijah was to the nation. And thus for Elijah to be taken is to lose the protection of Israel. And thus Elisha in his grief tears his clothes. Now there's really, I think, a double meaning. First, there's the grief of losing his spiritual father. And then there's an important implication for us in this. And that is, a good result spiritually doesn't mean we still don't grieve what led to that. Or to put it in simpler terms, it was good that Elijah went to heaven. It was good that he didn't have to die. But that doesn't mean Elisha was happy or that he should be. In like manner, sometimes Christians feel guilty when a loved one dies and they go, well, they're in a better place, so I know I shouldn't feel sad, but Elisha grieved when Elijah went to heaven and there's nothing wrong with that. We should grieve even as we have joy, as we grieve as yet not without sorrow, as it says in Thessalonians. But I think there's a double meaning because by Elisha tearing his clothes, what does he now put on? Elijah's cloak he has put on literally the mantle of leadership and then when he walks back he goes to the same spot on the Jordan and he also does what Elijah did and the river parts now notice Elijah asked where is the Lord in verse 14 the God of Elisha he doesn't ask do I now control the cloak or does this magical garment still work what part of the river the Lord part of the river he just happened to allow that to be a cloak the cloak has no power except as connected to god and yes god allowed it to be a tool but he could stop at any moment and it's really essential to realize that god alone has the power we need and not a person of god or some article or tool people even christians often think oh if i'm just holding or touching a cross or if I'm in a church building, or if I'm with some religious person, then I have more power. You may know that in October 1977, Maria Rubio was rolling up her burrito when she noticed some skillet burns on the tortilla that resembled the face of Jesus. For many, this was a weird anomaly, but not for 35,000 people who over the next two years went to go by the tortilla and pray for their sick loved ones. People think, oh, if we could find the Holy Grail, or the Ark of the Covenant, or if I could go be in the Jordan River where Jesus was baptized, then, then God will answer my prayer. Then, no. The Bible says all of that is silly nonsense. God has power. Throughout the Bible, at times, He has allowed certain things, like the cloak here, or Moses' staff, to be instruments which He used but they, in and of themselves, have no power. What you need for God's power is the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And everyone by faith has that power. Well, amazingly, the water split in two. Just like when Moses did it, and then Joshua, and then Elijah. And really, that's what's going on. It's a clear demonstration that God has passed the leadership from Elijah to Elisha. It's not that Elisha took Elijah out, beat him up, took the cloak, and came back. No, he does the same thing showing that he has now been appointed by God, that he is now the leader. And so the prophets who come 
They see this, they see the cloak, and they bow before him, recognizing his rule over them. They then go look for Elisha, most likely thinking that, well, maybe like Moses, he's died and we just need to go find his body, give it a proper burial. Maybe it's on a mountain or in some valley. And yet, though Elisha warns them not to, they go and they never find him. But why doesn't Elijah die? Well, Elijah doesn't die because in his final act by God, it's his final defeat and insult to the worshipers of Baal. Baal was known as the rider of the clouds. And so in his final event on earth, God takes up Elijah in the clouds. As well, they believe Baal died every year just as the harvest came and went. And in the spring, Baal needed to be revived. And yet, the prophet who most clearly attacks Baal, even he does not die. Now we're about to see, though, that God is going to continue to his work. Because it doesn't matter the servants that he uses. He used Elijah, and now he's going to use Elisha. Now that is sometimes disconcerting to Westerners. I'm essential. They need me. They can't do this without me. We don't like to be told, you're a mere servant that can be replaced. And yet the Bible's clear, Acts 17, 25. God is not served by human hands as though he needed anything. God doesn't need me. He doesn't need Keith. He doesn't need any of us. And yet in his grace, he allows us to be part of his mission. You know, the infinite, eternal, omnipotent creator has allowed us to serve him. He sent his son to serve us and he will reward us for all that we do for him. We serve not because God's desperate for us, but out of a joy to get to serve our Lord and Master. I've mentioned this illustration before, but I think it paints it so well. Booker T. Washington was a man born into slavery in 1856. Well, soon after that, the slaves were emancipated, and he worked diligently to go to college where he met General Armstrong, the president. Booker T. Washington then writes, I never man, no, sorry, I never saw a man who so completely lost sight of himself. He was just as happy in trying to assist some other institution in the South as he was when he was working for his own college. It would be difficult to describe the hold that he had upon his students or the faith that they had in him. I recall that one of the general's former students had occasion to push his wheelchair up a long, steep hill that taxed his strength to the utmost. When the top of the hill was reached, the former pupil, with a glow of happiness on his face, exclaimed, I am so glad that I've been permitted to do something that was real hard for the general before he dies. It's a joy to serve. And that really gets to the core here of how do we transition leaders and not lose the mission? It's when we realize the mission is not about me. When it's not about you. Whenever it's, we got to continue this for our name or our church or our name, that's going to die. And yet when we keep it focused on God and serving Him, God will continue to work through that. Now understanding the rest of the story we really have to understand this transfer of prophetic leadership from Elijah to Elisha. Often people will end here, and then they'll pick up the next two elements, and then they seem even more bizarre than they are. And yet, while these stories do have some odd elements to them, if you see the flow of the story, 
they make a lot more sense. Let's just consider what's going on here. A transfer of prophetic leadership. Well, what do prophets do? Prophets call people back to God and they're His visible representation in word and deed. If people submit to and obey the prophet, what does God do? He blesses them. If they reject the prophet and disobey, what does God do? God punishes them. And that's exactly what we see in these last two stories. Because since Elisha is indwelled by God's spirit, he is the prophetic representation. We are going to see a blessing for obeying God and a curse for disobeying. We begin in verses 19 through 22 of this last section. Elisha's indwelling because he returns to Jericho and there they say, look, we have this wonderful city and yet the water's horrible. Okay, without good water, you're not going to have good crops and you're not going to prosper. And so what does Elisha do? He calls for a new bowl and he puts salt into it. And then he goes to the spring of the water. He throws it in and he says in verse 21, thus says the Lord, I have healed this water. From now on, neither death nor miscarriage shall come from it. Now notice that the Lord healed the water. This is not some magical, secret, biblical formula for water healing. Thus the water was healed, notice verse 22, according to Elisha's (coughs) word. This is not a magic brew. This water is not a water healing potion, so don't try this at home or in the woods when you need something to drink, throwing salt in it is probably going to make it even worse. Rather, God's word through the prophet brought healing. Why did God use the salt in the new bowl? I have no idea. But he did. And he's used donkeys and he's used staffs and he's used all kinds of things. But God healed the water. You know, often what happens, we get so caught up in the minutia of how that we lose the big picture of why. Elisha, as we said, was just appointed as God's prophet, and he bears God's word. How do they respond? Well, what did they do? They came out and they bowed to him. They were showing respect for God's leader. And Leviticus 26 says what will happen if you honor the Lord. Leviticus 26, 3-5. If you walk in my statutes and observe my commandments and do them, then I will give you your rains in their season, and the land shall yield its increase, and the trees of the field shall yield their fruit. In other words, he's replenishing the water because they have returned to the Lord. As Jericho receives God's prophet, God blesses him. But we really have to notice the important spiritual implication of this. Jericho is a cursed city. The very city that is under God's curse can become a city of blessing when they repent and return to the Lord. Their past does not dictate their future. And that's an important lesson for us because many Christians are caught up with what I did five years ago, 15 years ago, 30 years ago. It has ruined my life and I'll never be blessed by God again. And yet God can take cities that were supposed to be devoted to destruction, never be rebuilt, and when they want to serve the Lord, redeem and renew. Your life, even all the darkness that has been in the past, is not past being redeemed. Trust in the Lord to use even the most broken of places. We noted earlier that Elisha is retracing steps. So he crossed the Jordan. He went back to Jericho. And so where is he going to go next? Bethel, where he came from. But he actually doesn't get to Bethel because before he gets there, 
a group of almost teenage boys comes out of the city jeering, mocking and yelling at him. Go up, you bald head. Go up, you bald head. Well, Elisha turns around, curses them in the name of the Lord. Then two she-bears come out from the woods and they tear 42 of the boys. Well, we need to note a few things about this story. First, two words are used to describe these individuals. And most likely, these boys are in the range of 10 to 12 year olds. Thus, not little boys who just woke up from an afternoon nap. Second, we mentioned aspects of Bethel earlier, and let's remember that for close to 80 years, Bethel has been the very center of disobeying God, because there they have idols set up directly opposed to Yahweh. There they have a new priesthood set up diametrically opposed to Yahweh. There they continue sacrifices. And in fact, the town was so perverse that where did Jericho get rebuilt from? Bethel. This is the town that does not like the Lord at all. And we see this hostility because, did you notice, they come out of the city to Elisha. They don't even want him anywhere near. It's not as though, it's not as though Elisha was walking through the town and the two little kids just said this. As well, third, 42 of the boys were torn, meaning there were many more of them. Surely once the bears came, many of them ran for safety. Now, I don't know how many were spared, but let's just say half of them made it. Now, just picture this. You're walking outside a city or a house, and 80 people come out running, yelling, shouting at you. That's a mob. That's a group that wants nothing to do with you. And thus, Dale Davis kind of summarizes. He says, we need to understand that these were responsible young lads expressing abuse, contempt, and hostility towards Yahweh's representative, and they knew they were doing so. Now, understanding all of those details and all that's going on in regards to God clearly demonstrating a change of prophetic leadership helps us better, emphasis on better, understand the story. Not perfect. This is not a cranky, insecure old man who can't come to grips with male pattern boldness. This is not random, bizarre, and uncontrollable explosions of anger. This is not also giving us permission to call down curses on people if they have calling your body into question. Rather, this is a clear sign of prophetic judgment, just as Jericho was a clear sign of prophetic blessing. The new leader of the prophets of God passes by Bethel, the town known for leading Israel from God. The question is, Bethel, do you now want to submit to God? Or do you now want to continue in rebellion? And we have to realize the way they're treating Elisha is ultimately how they're treating God. Imagine if the United States sent a new ambassador to a country and as soon as the ambassador got there, they arrested him, publicly beat him, and then killed him. We would recognize that's what they think about us. Well, what these representatives of Bethel are saying is this is what we think about you God get out of here we don't want anything to do with you thus second chronicles 36 15 says the Lord the God of their fathers sent persistently to them by his messengers because he had compassion on his people and on his dwelling place but they kept mocking the messengers of God despising his words and scoffing at his prophets 
until the wrath of the Lord rose against his people until there was no remedy. So just as there's no doubt about what Bethel thinks about God, God leaves no doubt about how he'll respond when people continue in mocking and cursing him. We noted earlier that Leviticus 26 told blessings if you obey the Lord. It also says curses for disobeying. Leviticus 26, 21 says, Then if you walk contrary to me and will not listen to me, I will continue striking you sevenfold for your sins. Then notice this, And I will let loose the wild beast against you, which shall bereave you of your children, and to destroy your livestock and make you few in number, so that your roads shall be deserted. So if you read this story out of its immediate and even its larger context, it seems that all is going on is an old man getting unhinged. Yet upon seeing the larger picture, seeing the two stories of Jericho and Bethel working together, we see that this is really a picture of how does God work through his prophets. As one man aptly puts it, God's word through the prophet can bring both healing or harm, deliverance or disaster. How will you respond? So Elisha then finishes his journey by going to Carmel, the location of God's defeat over Baal, and then to Samaria, the capital of Israel. If the faithful in Israel are worried that Elijah is gone, they shouldn't be. Elisha, Elijah has been taken up, sorry, but God continues his work no matter the servants. Thus Elisha has visited the top sites of loyalty and disloyalty to Israel. And thus the question is looming by what Elisha did, how will y'all respond? Will you be like Jericho and honor the Lord and the prophet and receive blessing? Or will you be like Bethel and mock and tell God's prophet to leave and then receive punishment? And yet this story is more than just explaining the transition of power from Elijah to Elisha. It's also preparation for the final prophet. Later prophets would foretell that Elijah would return and that he would tell of the coming Messiah. And Jesus will tell us that that Elijah was John the Baptist. And then... In the transfiguration of Jesus in Mark 9 and in Luke 9, Jesus is on the Mount of Olives and he appears in his eternal glory. And who's there with him? Elijah and Moses. And what is said? We hear a quote of Deuteronomy 18.15, which had foretold of this final prophet to come. And God the Father says, This is my beloved son. Listen to him. In other words, Jesus is the greatest and the final and the fulfillment of all prophets. And yet he's more than just a prophet. He's also God's eternal son. Thus the question for Israel and how they respond to Elisha is the question for us today. How will we respond not to Elisha, but to Jesus? Just like Elisha though, how we respond to Jesus will bring either blessing or cursing. Jesus himself said in Luke 6, 46, Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do what I tell you? Everyone who comes to me and hears my word and does them, I will show you what he is like. He's like a man building a house who dug deep and laid the foundations on the rock. And when a flood arose, the stream broke against that house and could not shake it because it had been well built. In other words, you listen to my word and you're going to have a solid life. And yet he goes on, But the one who hears 
my words and does not do them is like a man who built a house on the ground without a foundation. When the stream broke against it, immediately it fell and the ruin of that house was great. Just like Elisha, there's blessing or cursing based on how you respond. So Jesus is saying, how you respond to me and my words, you'll either be blessed or cursed. But you may have been wondering, but if we go back to the beginning of the story, couldn't God have just taken Elijah at Gilgal? Why did he have to go out of the promised land? Isn't that kind of odd that before he'll take Elijah, he takes him out of the promised land? I think it's because Moses and Elijah, as great as they were, they can never lead God's people all the way to the promised land. They needed, we needed one who not only promised and proclaimed, if you mock the Lord, you'll be punished, but also could make a way those who mocked the Lord could be forgiven. You know, when Jesus was on the cross, the crowd jeered and mocked, but what did Jesus say? Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Like the prophets of old, there is the promise of forgiveness. And like cursed Jericho's, if you'll turn and submit, you too can be redeemed, renewed, and restored to God. Yet, not only was the crowd mocking, but one on his right and one on his left mocked. Until one of them said, Do you not know who you're mocking? Jesus, today will you remember me? And Jesus said, Truly I say today, say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. So even to Jesus' last breath, we see pictured how you respond to Jesus either leads to greater curse or eternal blessing. God still takes mockers and scoffers and he makes them into saints and worshipers. So will you bow the knee? Let's pray. Oh Lord, as we began this morning, this is not just a message for someone who doesn't know you, but for each one of us, for all the nooks and crannies of life with our finances, with our relationships, with our ethics, with everything, will we bow the knee to you? Will we heed your word and receive the blessings? Or will we say, get up, get out of here. We don't want anything to do with you. Oh Lord, soften our hearts Renew our wills that we might eagerly bow the knee and know your blessings. It's in your son's name we pray. Amen.